0: Once you've marked that hymn that Brother Harold has asked us to mark, I would ask you to ponder with me the greatness of the opportunity we have tonight. Indeed, as has already been mentioned, we're blessed with a host of visitors who've come our way. We're appreciative for the decision, the choice that you've made. We extend to you a warm welcome to come and be back with us at any time you can, to pick with us here at Pippin. We'd appreciate that and look forward to having you come with us. We understand that some have had their services earlier in the day today, and thus you had a flexibility, if you will, or capability, and we're certainly appreciative that you've chosen to spend your Sunday evening with us. Tonight, as we consider one of the aspects found in that 15th chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, as that was read a moment ago, we each can be so powerfully challenged by the very thought of the somewhat lengthy title that I've given to to the lesson tonight, You noted that the word is found there in verses 5 and 6 of this chapter, like-mindedness, the making of one body. Over the next few minutes this evening, I would ask that you would take a journey with me as we look at some of the interesting aspects of like-mindedness, not only as it was revealed by the Apostle Paul to the Roman brethren, but also even as we apply it to our lives today in the precious body known as the church. In fact, that will be the way in which we'll begin our lesson tonight by first setting the stage, by making some introductory comments, and then focusing attention more carefully on the book of Romans to see exactly the background in which Paul wrote that letter. And first of all, that will give us a better appreciation for the actual text of chapter 15, and then finally making some applications for my life and yours today in the body of Christ. That being said, notice with me what is the church. We understand that it is not per se a building. It is not per se a physical edifice of some form. It is the precious body of Christ composed of individuals, men and women, boys and girls, who upon the act of faith and obedience thereto have been bound together by the precious blood of Christ into one body. The New Testament term is the ecclesia, the called out, those called out of the world of sin, those being lost, into a saved relationship with the precious Son of God by virtue of the sacrifice of His blood. And thus the church by its very character is an eternally significant matter. And oh, how precious and how rich it vitally is. In fact, consider just a few of the things that might easily be noted. How appreciative you and I can be for that marvelous gift of Christ. That God loved us enough to send His Son, though we did not deserve that sacrifice, and though certainly we didn't deserve His blood. But consider also the value, the inestimable value of the church. Ephesians 5.23 very directly informs us that the church is the body of the saved. And hence, if we're outside that body, we must be lost. And hence we come readily to appreciate the glorious grandness of that church. In Ephesians 3.21, Paul could very directly say, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. The glory then that God is to be understood as having comes by virtue of that glorious body, the church. In addition, notice the worth of one soul that the church proclaims. Though the world may tell us that we, in fact, are nothing better than some kind of animal, that's not the message of the Bible, and that's not the message of the church. The church preaches beautifully and amazingly the testimony of the fact that one soul is worth more than the whole world, Mark eight thirty six to It is thus finally, perhaps, able to be said that we can appreciate also the comfort that we enjoy. Fellow brothers and sisters, Those who have a like-minded character to ourselves who are also intent, like we, on inhabiting those beautiful climes of heaven. That's the family of the church. But all that being said, perhaps that very word does, in fact, beg a few other questions. What does it mean to really be like-minded? And what's more, how is it accomplished? It may well be that that final question is the most applicable one for us. For after all, we might well appreciate in general what the term means. How is it accomplished? Well, let us now turn our attention to maybe focus attention on that a little bit more carefully. As we've noted some of the basics of the church, what about this subject of like-mindedness? Please note this with me if you would. We might well begin by calling attention to any generic organization and seek to at least draw a lesson or two from it. You and I well know that there are many organizations on earth. There are clubs of various types and kinds, there are civic organizations of various motives and purposes, there is governmental organizations, there are civic organizations, educational organizations, and the list could go on rather extensively. But this much we understand, any organization is in some sense formed and founded by virtue of a common cause, a common heritage, a common history, or a common purpose. It is a group of people who share something in common. As we might well consider though, that organization will not be terribly productive nor will it accomplish its purpose unless those members share a selfless devotion to the accomplishment of that cause. If the members are constantly fighting one with another as to who's the greatest, or as to whose name is to be the one that is highest or most noble, their attention will not be directed on accomplishing the purpose and mission of the organization. But as we reflect upon that, is it not that way in the church as well? Though the church is that marvelous and precious body of Christ, is it not the case that you and I too will fail in the accomplishment of the great task that heaven has given us if we focus too much on things that are not the cause, things that are not that goal to be pursued? Notice some of the text that we can consider along that line. In 1 John 1, verse 7, there the inspired apostle of love made this marvelous observation. He said, speaking about the benefit of the blood of Christ. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. Thus we see the bond that we enjoy in Jesus. You and I. And in fact, it is a universal bond in the sense that there may be congregations all over this globe, brethren meeting tonight, perhaps earlier today, Who also appreciate the bond of the blood of Jesus. That bond ties us very closely. It forms for us the mission, the purpose that is to be accomplished. It is the sharing of that news with others. It is the beautiful enjoyment of what God has given us by virtue of that blood. It's no wonder in Revelation 1.5 we then can read that text that informs us that we have been made kings and priests. That is to say, a kingdom. God has bound you and me together in a kingdom, and there alone is a sense, a hint, of the like-mindedness that is to come. In a kingdom, there is one king. And in a kingdom, the subjects give honor and homage to that one king. They don't go their own way and try to accomplish their own ends despite what the king has declared. In, fa- in effect, could we not take that a step further? In addition to that thought, Notice Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, that marvelous idea given to you and me about the mission that we're to accomplish. There Paul, in writing to the Romans, made this statement. He said, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good, And acceptable and perfect will of God. As we'll note somewhat shortly, the Roman congregation had a very interesting set of circumstances with which they were dealing. And in this 12th chapter, Paul has just reminded them that you, first and foremost, sacrifice, if you will, your body daily, always, to be that living sacrifice unto your Heavenly Father. And as you do that, you will not be conformed to the world, for the world is the enemy of God by virtue of Satan's influence, James 4, verse 4. But rather, you will be transformed as your mind is renewed to the accomplishment of that grand and eternal will of God. What a beautiful thought, and what a remarkable concept. To say all of that begins to tell us that this notion of like-mindedness is rather deep-seated. It's all throughout the sacred scriptures. And to unlock its potential helps us see that you and I, just like other organizations, we need to be like-minded too. Selflessly devoted to the cause that has bound us together. For only in that way will we accomplish all that God can allow us to as we use our potential and our talents to seek the possibilities He's given us. Let us think about the church in Rome. That's the very church to whom Paul wrote, as we noted in chapter 15 of that book. What was the setting for that congregation? Why was the subject of like-mindedness so critical for them? As we start back in chapter 1 of that book, notice the following thoughts, and it is an interesting journey indeed. The church in Rome was founded, and as it was founded and came into existence, The circumstance was such that perhaps more so than some other congregations in the first century era, there was a strong tendency for divisiveness, a strong tendency for opposition within the ranks. That can be easily seen in the opening four chapters of the book of Romans. Paul begins that letter in chapter 1 by encouraging them to appreciate the sins of the Gentiles. The church in Rome had been founded by a combination, an amalgamation, if you will, of those who formerly had been Jews and those who formerly had been Gentiles. As we well understand, the Jew came to the New Testament era with a completely different mindset than the Gentile. The Jew was schooled in the Law of Moses. On the Sabbath days and the other special times of meeting in the Old Testament, the Jew had had the scriptures read to him or her. And as they appreciated them, they came to recognize they were the chosen people. Thus, they were set on a pedestal in the sense that they were the ones through whom God would produce the means of the redemption of the human family. As all of that transpired, the Jews then had a grave difficulty as they approached Christianity. For suddenly now, they weren't per se the special people anymore. The gospel was for everybody. They as well as the Gentile. And thus Paul had to remind the Jew in this book that God has grafted in the Gentiles. All of you have now by the will of God been bound together into one body. You are not superior Jews to those Gentiles and they aren't superior to you. You each are at level ground at the foot of the cross. There was a dire need for the understanding of that equality in the body of Christ, like-mindedness. And what's more, to the Gentiles, Paul also had to remind them in the same book about many of the same ideas. Notice that the Gentiles did not have, if you will, that old law of Moses. That wasn't specifically given for their benefit In chapters 3 and 4 Paul will make that note for the Jews are the ones who'd receive the oracles of God however that did not mean God didn't love the Gentile that didn't mean that he cast them off and cared not for them he loved them and Christ died for them too in this book then Paul had a challenge and a charge to somehow bind these Jews and Gentiles together into one loving mutually beneficial body of Christ He needed to convince them of like-mindedness. They needed to have a like-mind toward the various matters of the church, the sacrifice of Jesus and each of their responsibilities toward the church. And thus, throughout this book, we begin to see that over and over again. Specifically, recall with me that amazing statement in chapter 1, verse 16. For there, notice that he made this interesting comment. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul made no basic separation there. Both Jew and Greek are subject to the gospel and both are in need of it. Notice in chapter 3, verse 23, how that he would say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Thus, both the Jew and the Gentile are in need of the gospel. We can begin to see as the book moves onward how successfully Paul made that argument about how that they needed to be like-minded. As we look a bit further and see some of the ways that like-mindedness then comes to you and me, we have reached the point of considering more carefully that text in Romans 15. As that was read at our hearing earlier, Notice with me again how that chapter begins, Romans 15, verses 1 through 6. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but, as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul employed the word like-minded, he defined it for us in verse number 6. Let's again focus attention on exactly what that means. Like-minded, then in verse 6, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To be like-minded is to be of minds that are like. It is to glorify God with one mouth and one mind. As we begin to feel the seriousness and the urgency of that subject, Our mind perhaps immediately races to other congregations in the first century that had problems much like this. In Corinth, the problem was just as severe, wasn't it? For in the first four chapters of that book, Paul had to reprimand Corinth carefully and strongly because they were following things of men. No wonder in verse 10 of chapter 1, Paul said, very interestingly and also very, very powerfully, I beseech you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that ye all speak the same thing, and that ye be of one mind, perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. We're beginning to note then that what Rome needed to hear, Corinth did too. And notice here that as Paul wrote to the brethren in Rome, there are four lessons that we can draw, four things we might extract to help us be like-minded today. How can we as the Pippin congregation be unified and like-minded to the extent here that Paul wrote to the brethren in Rome? There are four lessons it would seem that we can easily extract, and let us look at them one in turn. First, there are different stages of faith. It is simply a fact that you and I appreciate that brethren, you and I, may not be at the same stage in faith. There are some who are mature in faith, advanced in years perhaps. Those who have been a Christian a long time maybe. But there may well be others who are weaker in faith for one reason or another. It may well be that he or she hasn't been a Christian that long yet. Maybe he or she is in need of more teaching, more instruction. That is one of the issues that can lead to a serious sense of lack of like-mindedness. One person who is far stronger in faith perhaps has a tendency to move aside from or place a wall between he and person who is weaker. We should understand we don't come into the kingdom being absolutely mature. We each are in need of growing. We each are in need of maturing, aren't we? And as we proceed in that journey, our faith will strengthen and we will reach a point with the prospect of time where we will be stronger in faith than we once were. It is an interesting fact that that observation alone is one that can certainly aid us. Notice some of the texts in Romans 15.1, the very one we just read. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Paul very directly made mention of those that were weak and those that were strong. And he furthermore gave a sense of responsibility to those that are stronger. You that are strong, bear with them. Bear the infirmities of those that are weaker. They have not reached your level of maturity yet. They have not reached your understanding of the deeper matters of the scriptures yet. Time and again in the New Testament, that was an important issue in maintaining a sense of unity, in maintaining a sense of like-mindedness. Notice one chapter earlier, also to the church in Rome, in Romans 14, verses 1 and 2, "...him that is weak in the faith, receive ye but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs." In that first century era one of the issues with which the church in Rome had to deal, and it was also an issue with which the church in Corinth dealt, 1 Corinthians 8 informs us, was what may a Christian eat, and what may he not? As we understand the opening verses of chapter 14, Paul encouraged them to do the following. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but do not do so with a mindset and attitude of doubtful disputation. That person is weaker than you. In your sense of love for him and understanding of his situation, you receive him. You do that in an attitude of instruction, in an attitude of understanding that Christ died for him. His soul needs to be saved. You do not put stumbling blocks in his way. You do not cause him to, in fact, stumble or fall aside from Christ. And thus, we too should understand there are different stages in faith. There are some who are weaker and others who are stronger. And the stronger can aid the weaker to mature and to grow. As we turn to the scriptures for the ultimate source of that growth, we remember from Romans 10.17 that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, the word of God. And also we remember in 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2, that there we are to desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, As you and I hunger and thirst for the Word, we will grow, and we can be a tremendous influence for the cause of Christ to others who may in fact be weaker. One of the things that aids us then is to remember that once we were weak, and we can understand how it feels to not have a full understanding, but we can aid others to come to that understanding, can't we? That will be one part in helping us all to be like-minded just as surely as we make that observation we should note the text of hebrews 5 that does encourage us to never be lazy or to never fail to grow when that opportunity is presented for to the to those individuals, to those Hebrews, that writer inform them. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskilful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full age, even to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And thus there is a spiritual exercise. As you and I then are exercised, we will grow, and are able then to take that meat of the word. It is interesting to notice then this first lesson was one the Romans needed to learn. To be like-minded, they needed to understand the stages of faith. But that's not the only lesson. Notice what else is also included in this same text. From verses 2 and 3. Specifically, verse 2 begins by saying, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. We learn that the Christian way is not a way that is selfish first and foremost. It is not a way that exalts myself above that of others but rather the Christian way, just as Jesus is our example in verse 3, is a way in which we appreciate the powerful need that all have for the gospel, and we don't exalt our selfish ways above that of others. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. And we understand that Paul did write that as though, in a sense, that that was Unlimited. It's not as though you would forfeit your own faith for the benefit of another, but rather in your pursuit of the gospel way, in your desire to be like Jesus, in your desire to follow the simple plan of New Testament Christianity, you appreciate the value of the souls of others, and you are willing to sacrifice for their behalf. That would certainly be an important part of being like-minded, isn't it? For if each were willing to do that, it's not as though that one is sacrificing in the sense that no one else ever sacrifices for him. But each sacrifices for the other and bonds together that group in a marvelous way of brotherly love. Isn't it true that Jesus in John 13, 34 reminded them that by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another? And thus, as that love is seen by a group of people who care so much one for another that they are willing to esteem the desires, the needs of others better than their own, that would lead to a like-minded atmosphere where each appreciates the value of the other and who loves the sacrifices and approaches of the other. As the church is described in the New Testament, We notice that the value of the soul is the central idea that sets forth that idea. Jesus taught in Mark 8 as well as Matthew 16 that if a man were to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul, he has not accomplished anything, but rather he will be found sorely lacking in that day of judgment. The fact that Jesus made that observation perhaps reminds us of Ecclesiastes 11 verse 1 when in the days of the long ago the wise preacher said cast thy bread upon the water and thou shalt find it after many days it may well be that that's one of the closest scriptural statements that you and i'll ever read to one such as the chickens do come home to roost if you and i are to be friendly we must show ourselves friendly if we are to be a congregation of friendly individuals we must show that to those who come our way and to those in our community, and to those with whom we come in contact. The thought then that Paul encouraged these Romans to seek to please others, and not just always self, challenges us even to this day to do the same. Don't we live in a world that more often than not preaches the opposite lesson? You take care of yourself. You trample over the thoughts, feelings, desires, and motives of others if that's what you must do to gain what you want. That's what the world says. But Jesus said you love your enemies. Jesus said if your enemy needs you to walk with him for a mile, you walk too. He said if he smites you on one cheek, you turn the other one too. That's the kind of thing that our Savior taught. And all the while, he of course undergirded that with a thought of love and recognition of the greatness of what lies beyond in the attitude of eternity. But notice yet a third lesson to be found in the same place in this very same context. Beginning in verse number 4, the character of God is mentioned. One might well inquire what role that has to play in Paul's argument, the character of God. He begins in verse 4, "...for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded, one toward another." according to Christ Jesus. It might do us well to recall the meaning of some of those words. What about the term patience? As it's employed in that particular location, it means perseverance or steadfast endurance. We're beginning to see easily how significant that idea can be, but notice the other, namely consolation, which means encouragement or comfort or help. You and I understand that as human beings, we are not sinlessly perfect. We understand that all too often we fail the great God of heaven who loved us. All too often we say something we wish we hadn't. We do something we sorely regret. And we fail to do what we often regret and wish we had done. All of that shows us our imperfections. And it also shows us how important it is for our brothers and sisters to bear with me. I'm not perfect, and neither are you. But as we bear with one another in patience and consolation, we'll be there to encourage each other. When those difficult moments in life arise, even when the times of celebration come, we'll be there to rejoice one with another, and we'll also be there to weep with each other. Didn't Paul to these very people write to them? We weep with them that weep, and we rejoice with them that rejoice. Romans 12, verse 15. The very thought then that the church is bound together and we try to exemplify those characteristics that God does, we too will be people of patience, those who will be people of consolation. One of the Christian graces that's mentioned to us in 2 Peter 1, those things that were to give diligence and add to our life, one of them was patience. And as we think about the role of patience, hasn't God been mighty patient with you and me? Or if God had given up on me after the first mistake. Or if he'd cast me aside and given up on me when I failed. I would be hopelessly lost, but God didn't do that. He has been patient. His long-suffering, in fact, is my salvation and yours. We read in Second Peter 3, verses 13 and following. And when we see then that God is patient and that he encourages and that he is helpful, that encourages us to do the same. All of that helps to teach us The fact that as God has those characteristics, He desires that we share them as well. Perhaps to our mind might come Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. On that occasion, as Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, he informed them that they too should desire to walk that high vocation of Christianity, and in so doing, that they were to bear with one another. That was his command to them. You forbear one another in love. And yet that word forbear means to bear with. You understand that others are not sinlessly perfect and you appreciate their failures, but you encourage them to do better. You be there one for another. Perhaps all of that rushes in our mind to the final thought that we may extract from this brief discussion, the final one that we may take from these opening six verses. As you look at them with me, consider one final one namely the guiding principle. What is the benefit of it all? Why is it so urgent to be like-minded? Is it really that important? We've noted that the Old Testament, in fact, encouraged that sense of consolation, for even Paul made reference to what was written aforetime was written for our learning. But then he notices with us in verse 5 that Jesus Christ is the one that binds this thought together. He is the reason that we're like-minded we have no other place to turn. No wonder when Peter asked that question in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. We thus desire to be like-minded because we know to have any other mind is not pleasing. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2 verse 5. And thus we desire to have the mind of Christ in us, exemplified in us, characterized by us. And when we are that way, we will be like-minded, joined together in one heart and mind to those of like-precious faith, 2 Peter 1, verse 1, and that unity will be a strong fortress against the wiles of the devil, against the shenanigans of him who would destroy our souls. For when we are a part of that group, that organization bound in love by the blood of Jesus, we are in fact that strong fortress that Satan cannot overcome. Jesus expressly said that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Even Hades, even death cannot overcome the power and union that's available in Christ. Perhaps then to reflect upon all of these points we can well think about some of the applications of them as well. We have seen these four lessons as we think about the guiding principle of Jesus and how strong and how motivating that was. Maybe the example of Paul and Barnabas would be so appropriate. On the first missionary journey, as recorded in Acts 13 and following, we remember that Paul and Barnabas went on that journey, and at first John Mark was a companion. However, when they reached the mainland of Asia Minor, John Paul departed. He no longer continued with them on that journey, and later, when the idea of the second missionary journey came to be, it was initially the desire to take John Mark along. Barnabas desired to do that, but Paul did not. Paul, in fact, had a very different idea, and here we notice a severe distinction. What would happen? Would Paul and Barnabas thus give up the work of the Lord? Would they simply throw their hands up, failing to be like-minded and quit? Or would they allow the operation of Christ through them to emanate to the goodness of the gospel by continuing in those labors in another way? Acts 15, verses 36 and following give us the answer to that. And we remember that they each went on a missionary journey, whereas before the idea was for there to be one. We notice that Paul chose Silas, and ultimately Timothy joined them and continued on to the region of Asia Minor. Barnabas took John Mark, and they went to the island, that island, and continued on the work of the Lord in another place. The goodness of God was seen as these strove to be like-minded. It's not that they agreed on every matter of expediency, but when it came to the gospel, that was uncompromisable. That should be my approach as well as yours, shouldn't it? Never can we compromise the truth on any point. Never can we, in fact, set it aside in, in deference to unity, for there can be no unity apart from truth. But rather, like Paul and Barnabas, we can be rooted and grounded in that truth and pursue that in matters of expediency as it occurs best to you and me. What a great thing to be like-minded! What a powerful concept at that! As we here at Pippin strive to be like-minded, as we push forward the boundaries and always want to be that like-minded congregation where we speak the same thing and be of the same judgment. And we, in fact, are of the same mind that will be a congregation pleasing to God, a congregation that much productivity can come from in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This very night, as you analyze your life and I do the same, are you like-minded with the Savior? We must begin with that question. In Amos 3, verse 3, that grand question of old was asked this way, Can two walk together except they be agreed? Are you walking with God? If he's walking on a different pathway, it's not him that is lost. It's you or it's me. You and I need to be walking the same way with him. If you aren't like-minded with him tonight, you need to realize that the gospel was sent for your benefit. Jesus died for you. He in fact put in place the plan of salvation that reads as follows Believe in Jesus as the Son of God. He did say in John 8.24, Except ye believe that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. In Luke 13, 5 he also informed those of that day, Nay, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. We begin to see then that on the day of Pentecost Peter preached that very same message. When he admonished those who heard him to repent. But we notice that they confessed the sweet name of Jesus as taught in the New Testament, specifically in Acts 8.37, and then they were baptized for the remission of sins. If you haven't done that, let tonight be the night that that takes place. Jesus will add your name to the book of life. You can then be growing in the faith as you become like-minded with each passing day with Him. If you have become a member of the body, but you haven't walked faithfully according to the word of the truth. Come back to your first love tonight. Let those observations, those mistakes be confessed. Repent of them. The Lord will forgive them. He'll welcome you back home. This very night, then, as you think about a brief summary of the lesson, is it fair to say that you and I have the precious privilege of being like-minded? And what's more, that it will be a grand example to all around about us. This very night, if we could assist anyone in your coming to the truth and your obedience to Christ, let us do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.